very much, Father Thomas. Uh, so yes, uh, I think the time uh, uh, is right for us today to switch and move towards uh, theology. And uh, I will now share my screen with you so that you can see my presentation. And the idea that I have for this uh, lecture is simply uh, to, to reflect uh, on first, uh, one moment, to reflect on uh, teleology in the classical approach to natural theology. So what, uh, in what way teleology can inspire natural theology, then in what way teleology can exp uh, inspire theology of nature, an alternative approach. And then at the end, I will look into uh, how teleology, or what is the place for teleology in science-oriented pantheism, as it is one of the very important uh, frameworks or contexts, uh, points of reference in science theology dialogue of today. So let's begin first with teleology in a classical approach to natural theology. First, let's define natural, uh, define natural theology. I believe that natural theology departs from the observation of natural phenomena and arrives and while reflecting on those natural or upon those natural phenomena in reference to philosophy of nature and metaphysics, it arrives at the theological conclusion that only the existence of God actually offers a satisfying and conclusive answer to the human search for understanding and meaning of things. And here we think about meaning of life. So once again, it, depart, it depart, departs from nature. So we don't presuppose that there is God. And the claim is that natural theology actually dis discovers God through reflection upon nature. What are the advantages? What is the main advantage of this approach? Well, Ian Barber rightly says, I believe, that it starts from scientific data on which we, can ex we might expect agreement uh, uh, this, uh, on which we might expect agreement despite cultural and religious differences. So it can be a common approach that may bring many people actually to take. At the same time, uh, the difficulty might be here that when taken alone, it might reduce God to God of uh, philosophers, the unmoved mover, maybe even a deistic creator, remote and not engaged in his relation to created reality. Also, one might ask whether at least some of the arguments developed in natural theology, uh, within it, natural theology, whether maybe, maybe they in fact presuppose God's existence and they simply become a set of rhetorical exercises for those who actually do believe in God and they just make those arguments in favor, I mean, in order as, as just, as I said, just an exercise for themselves, for those who already believe in God. So there is a lurking uh, danger here from which I believe St. Thomas Aquinas and the classical approach in theology uh, are free. Uh, and if we believe that they are free, so let's see how uh, teleology that is a subject of this conference may inspire this approach to theology that is to nature, that is uh, natural uh, uh, theology. So as you know, as you probably know, teleology becomes one of the crucial points of departure for Aquinas's natural theology in his fifth way. The text of this, uh, for, of, uh, in which he formulates this fifth way is now projected on the screen. So Thomas says that 
things, we can observe that things act for an end. This is what we discussed throughout this conference. And they do it, he says, always or nearly always in the same way, so as to obtain the best result. Then he claims they uh, do it not fortuitously, but designedly, and they achieve their end. And then he concludes that there must be an intelligent being that exists and by whom all natural things are, are directed to the end, and this being we all call God. So this is the uh, formulation of the, of the argument, right? Now, the question that is in the title of my presentation, uh, I'm sorry, before I go to that question, when we reflect upon the fifth way, the first question we should ask whether the fifth way, which I call the way uh, or uh, an argument for the existence of God from teleology, whether it is the same as the argument from design, and whereas we should call the Aquinas's fifth way an, an argument from design. And actually, many do call his fifth way an argument from design. To give you an example, Timothy Paul uh, claims that the fifth way speaks of the designer who directs the actions of the non-cognizant beings to act for an end. Kenneth Einar Himba, uh, he claims uh, that perhaps the earliest philosophically rigorous version of the design argument again owes to St. Thomas Aquinas, and he means his fifth way. Once again, Del Rasch and Jeffrey Kopersky, they claim that theistic arguments departing from exquisiteness of structure, functional or interconnectedness, once again are classified as teleological arguments or frequently as arguments from or to design. So you can see how philosophers uh, of, uh, th uh, uh, of uh, religion and theologians are actually putting or blending uh, those two terms, argument from teleology and from design. I think that part of this, I call it confusion, might uh, be an outcome of the fact that the English translation of the fifth way has this term designedly. Uh, those things are guided designedly to achieve their end. In Latin, we have ex intentione, so we don't uh, have a term which will speak about design. Now, let's move forward and ask the question, does Aquinas actually have an argument from design in his entire uh, corpus of his, of his works? Well, I believe that the closest he gets to framing such an argument for, for the existence of God, which we might call an argument from design, is the end of the 13th chapter of uh, the first part of his Summa Contra Gentiles. This is a long chapter which, where he has a number of proofs for the existence of God or arguments in favor of the existence of God. And at the very end, he has a short uh, paragraph that you have now uh, on screen where he forms something that possibly may be uh, considered an argument from design. He says that contrary and discordant things cannot be parts of one order except under someone's government, which enables all and each to tend to a definite end. Things are of diverse natures come together under one order, and therefore there must be a being by whose providence the world is governed. This we call God. On what base this argument might be considered an argument from design? Well, we uh, because because in this argument there is a reference to teleology. Uh, things uh, come together. Uh, there is a telos here, uh, 
There is also a reference to providence and government of the universe, but in the center of this argument truly is the order and parts coming together to form an order. And I think with respect to this, you might think it is an argument uh, from design. Now, at the same time, I would like to emphasize that order and design are not equivalent terms because only the latter presupposes the existence and causal activity of conscious design, 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 designer right away. When we say a designer must be a designer. Now, therefore I claim that there are at least two conditions that need to be met in order for this argument to become truly an argument from design. First, I believe Aquinas would have to introduce one more proposition saying that order observed in nature is an outcome or a sign of design. And then he would have to replace, in my opinion, the conclusion referring to the categories of providence and government with the one saying uh, something like this. There must therefore be some being by whose designing activity different parts in the created reality come together to form an order. I claim that only by meeting those two requirements, this would become an argument from design because otherwise I think it is closer to the argument from providence and governance, which is uh, more developed by Aquinas in his De Veritate question five, article two. It is also important to acknowledge which many philosophers uh, uh, who study Aquinas acknowledge, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, before I say this, uh, I want to emphasize that even if we treat it as an argument from design, even if we want to treat uh, that argument as an argument from design, it differs uh, substantially from contemporary intelligent design uh, argumentation and intelligent design movement, at least in three ways. For Aquinas, designer cannot intervene directly. He works through secondary and instrumental causes unless he works through miracles, but normally uh, he works through secondary and instrumental causes. Whereas for intelligent design uh, followers, designer intervenes directly to instantiate irreducibly complex structures and phenomena. For Aquinas, uh, he defies causal agency of God analogically, neither univocally or equi nor equivocally in relation to contingent causes. Whereas intelligent design followers, they uh, defy causal agency of intelligent designer univocally, in my, uh, uh, in my opinion, as an activity of a transcendent uh, intelligent cause among contingent causes. Finally, Aquinas, for him, his argument has undoubtedly a philosophical and theological nature in reference to the contemporary division of scientific disciplines, whereas intelligent design movement states that its main argument falls within the scope of natural science and can be actually, in fact, verified empirically. So we see how different uh, an argument from design in Aquinas, if there is such an argument, would be from the design, intelligent design movement uh, that we know uh, within the contemporary setting. Also, we have to emphasize what philosophers studying Aquinas uh, um, uh, acknowledge, that the argument, if it is an argument from design in Summa Contra Gentiles, it is much less developed from the philosophical standpoint. And for this reason, it should not be regarded as equal to Aquinas's major ways of demonstrating God's existence in natural theology. 
And in my opinion, it should be therefore also distinguished clearly from the argument from teleology. There might be related, but they should not be conflated. Okay, now the question that is in the title of the lecture, uh, part of uh, the, 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 the first part of the, the, of the title asks this question. Does teleo teleology prove the existence of God? Because this is what, in a way, natural theology should be about. We start from nature and we want to reach God. Does it work? Well, this is a complex issue. Because we have to distinguish here, and Aquinas does that, between two types of demonstration. Demonstration propter quid, which moves from causes to their effects. This is the best way to, to, to uh, argue uh, demonstratively, says Aquinas. But there is a second type of demonstration, demonstration quia, which moves from effects back to their causes. And in our five ways, and in the fifth way as well, uh, what we are dealing with is this second type of demonstration, which Aquinas acknowledges is a weaker demonstration. And particular issue with this demonstration is that the middle term of this demonstration is God's quiddity, the nature of God. So in order for this argument to work, we need to know what is God's quiddity. And the question obviously is, do we know the nature of God exactly? I don't think we do. So Aquinas knows that, and he suggests that this uh, definition that we need here might not necessarily, it, it may be that the definition that we re require is not the definition uh, explaining the real nature of God, but just a definition explaining the meaning of the term God. What it be to, uh, uh, for God to, uh, like what uh, attributes a, a being such as God should have in order to be God, uh, right? So he says that this, nominal definition might suffice. Well, there's a long conversation whether this works or not, and whether we still speak here about a demonstration or maybe just a, a, you know, a, 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 a something lower than this, okay? Uh, and I don't have time to, uh, to, to engage this uh, conversation. Uh, there are also, form common objective type. This would be maybe reference to material formal and efficient causes is sufficient. Well, to this Aquinas would say, mm, not really, because if you introduce efficient cause, efficient causes, they act for a purpose and we watch and, and we note that and we see that. So, so you cannot get rid of teleology, he would argue. What about behavior described as tele teleological being uh, or occurring by chance? Well, here, Aristotle and Aquinas after him uh, would say that chance is ontologically real, but it always refers to and happens in the reality which is ordered in some ways. So you, can get not, you cannot get rid of teleology. Perhaps teleology is real, but is purely natural, and there is no need to refer it to God. Well, Aquinas would say you would then end up with infinite regress, regress and an ending chain of teleological causes. So therefore you actually need God. And then we have the question obviously coming, uh, a question about evil, go direct evil actions, to which Aquinas would say 
this is the privation of privation of good and not something that uh, is willed by God. So I'm running through those arguments because uh, this is the, the main uh, purpose of my lecture. They have been discussed throughout the entire history of, uh, of Thomism. And you will find those who would claim that, yes, this is a demonstration of God's existence. And you will find those who claim, no, it is not. It doesn't work this way. Uh, and it's just a reasonable argument in favor of existence of God, but not a pure demonstration. You would find those theologians discussing those arguments uh, against the fifth way. Uh, so, um, yes, there's this conversation. You will find uh, voices going into both directions, and it is up to you to make a choice. What interests me in this lecture is something different. Is something different is the question uh, about what we learn from Aquinas's fifth way in this uh, theology of uh, in natural the uh, theology. Well, we will. Uh, what we hear is that uh, what we learn from other theologians is this. What we get from this fifth way is a proof, or maybe just a meaningful argument. And I tend to think the second option is true, for the existence of God, understood as the source of all teleological phenomena in nature. And then further conclusion would be, as a part of natural theology, this argument does not say anything more about God. The goal of this argument, as all other uh, five ways, is just to come, depart from nature and discover that there is God as a first cause. That's it, no more. Therefore, Timothy Paul would say, Aquinas himself sees the concept of God discovered through his five ways as rudimentary, since it is only in the following articles that he, we will find him asking or questioning whether God has a body, is perfect, is good, infinite, immutable, eternal, and even whether there's just one God. So the claim is this we can discover only through reference to revelation. In natural theology, we just discovered that God is, in the fifth way, a first uh, cause of all teleological uh, phenomena. I want to question this approach in my lecture. I believe that we can learn much more from Aquinas's fifth way when we refer to the very rich uh, understanding of teleology in Aristotle, which Aquinas does. First, I have four points. First, Aristotle's notion of teleology introduces, this is very important, a dynamical aspect to his, to aspect to his definition of essence of a given thing or organism. Therefore, Aristotle, among many, at least four terms that he uses to express what a substantial form or what essence of a being is, like form, shape, paradigm, archetype, or pattern, or the most sophisticated one, the definition of the essence, he adds one more term that is enteleheia, enteleki, that is form as actualized in the final state of the development of a being. We heard this quotation in uh, uh, Professor Skutrufinis' uh, presentation, the what, essence, and that for the sake of which are one. Therefore, my claim is this, if uh, Teleology, therefore, drives things and organisms to achieve the highest level of actuality available for them, that is, to live their life to the full. 
then God, who is the source of goal-directedness, is not only the highest metaphysical principle, but is also a being that is actualized to the highest possible degree and is a being that is most alive, that is life itself. And I think this is a great discovery. The second point, teleology relates uh, all the beings to uh, intelligence. I hate this thing because I cannot see everything. Maybe I will, how can I move this bar away from, okay, anyways. Teleology relates beings to knowledge and intelligence. And this applies to both inanimate, animate and intelligent beings because their subconscious and conscious goal directedness uh, relates them to still higher intelligence. And if this is the case, uh, then my suggestion is that Aquinas at least indirectly asserts here that God as the transcendental source of teleology must have knowledge and intelligence and have them in the highest possible degree. He must be omniscient therefore and infinitely surpass all other intelligent beings. This is the second lesson. The third lesson would be this. Teleology has a normative import. Goal-directedness in things and organisms is oriented toward what is good for them. And we read about this. Aquinas says they, organisms strive to what is best for them, right? Therefore, God, as the source of teleology, must be utterly good. He must be good itself. More than this, contingent beings aim for what is best it quote as optimum, not only for them, but also for the universe as a whole, in Aquinas' understanding. Uh, he has this idea of the of, of oneness of the universe. And if this is the case, we should uh, then uh, acknowledge that God, uh, who desires the goodness of the universe as a whole, taken as one, uh, himself must be one and totally simple. Eventually, the fourth point is this. Things acting for an end, uh, they act for, uh, acting for an end, uh, they act for an end always or nearly always in the same way, says Aquinas in his fifth way. What may stand on their way is other per se causation of some other entities or per, se, or per accidents quasi-causal character of chance occurrences. If this is the case, I think the conclusion is God is not only the author of both regularity and chance, but also the principle of their interplay in dynamically changing reality. So my claim is this, God discovered by following Aquinas' fifth way as the source, as discovered as the source of all teleological phenomena in the universe, is also discovered as life itself, as being omniscient and intelligent, as goodness itself, and as author of regularity and chance. And this is something uh, profound, because we learn all this before we will refer to Revelation. And I believe this, is, this shows the interpretative uh, potential of natural theology in classical understanding of what uh, natural theology is. Now, let's move to the second uh, approach, which is theology uh, of nature. Now, I propose my own definition of theology of nature, which uh, goes something like this. I suggest that theology of nature departs from the belief in God. 
So we approach the talk from, from the other direction. We depart from the belief in God based on historical revelation codified in the scriptures and reflected upon within theological tradition and religious experience, personal and communal. We depart from this point and we apply this revealed knowledge about God, uh, this perspective, as an explanatory tool providing a definitive answer to the questions of origin and ultimate fulfillment of natural phenomena observed in the universe. Okay, now uh, what are the what is the advantage of this approach? The advantage of this approach is this: the explanatory potential of the revelation of God given us by God uh, in his relation uh, uh, to the contingent universe enables us to develop an analogically, ana analogously far-reaching notion of the ultimate meaning of things that surround us. The difficulty here might be that if this approach is taken alone, it might alienate some Christians who hesitate to engage in critical analysis of the revealed truth, received tradition, and personal and communal religious experience. And that is why here we, fortunately, we may say, when analyzing nature, theology may and should turn to reason, including the research pursued by natural sciences, because the latter help the theologian to objectify better understand and penetrate the depth of his or her faith. Now, this is, uh, once again, theology of nature. So what do we learn uh, of our first? Let's ask the question that is the second part of the title of my lecture. Does therefore now God prove the existence of teleology? Because now we begin from revelation, right? And then does the existence of God prove uh, the existence uh, of, of teleology? Well, you may think it's a strange question, and I think it is in a way, because it would be rather strange to claim that the existence of God proves the existence of the natural world, which actually is better known to us than the principles of theology, which need to be revealed, right? And things that are known to us come to us through our senses. We don't need revelation for this. Well, this is true, but we may still argue that from the point of view of theology of nature, our knowledge of God and our relationship towards him as the creator of all natural, uh, 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 as the creator, they enable uh, us to discover a deeper theological meaning of natural phenomena, including those which may not be directly av available for empirical research, such as teleology. Not, at least not all aspects of teleology are uh, available for em empirical research. So uh, let's then try to see what we can learn from Aquinas's fifth way in reference uh, to uh, teleology, in, uh, I'm sorry, within the scheme of uh, theology of nature, okay? I think uh, the first important uh, thing is this. Here we discover something really profound. Just as human mind reflecting upon goal-directedness observed in nature is capable of discovering God as its source, departing from nature we reach God, the same human intellect enlightened by the revealed truth 
realizes that all created contingent beings flow from God and must be directed towards God. You see? So with natural theology, we discover that all teleology came from God. With theology of nature, we discover that all teleology is directed back towards God. Therefore, Aquinas would say everything is called good from the divine goodness as from the first exemplary, effective, and final principle of all goodness. Again, all things by desiring their own perfection, which uh, we see in nature, they desire God himself, inasmuch as the perfection of all things are so many similitudes, similitudes of the divine being. And some may know him as he is himself, human beings, Other, others may know some participation of his goodness, animals, but still others, plants and inanimate objects, they have a natural desire without any knowledge. But they all trying to achieve what is good for them, Aquinas says they want to reach towards God. And you can learn this only in theology of nature. All things, once again, desire God as their end. When they desire some good thing, whether this desire be intellectual or sensible or natural. And this is really, really profound. We may therefore conclude. Uh, I'm sorry, we, we can actually, go, uh, this is profound, but we can move still, uh, still forward and still deeper, I believe, uh, in our uh, theology of nature, in reference to teleology. Because we may think that just as the original sin of the first parents harmed the entire created reality, the eschatological consummation of the history of salvation at the second coming of Jesus Christ will bring its final renewal and transformation. Therefore, nature's groaning for restoration expressed by St. Paul in the letter to Romans finds its expression in our conscious longing for the final completion of the rebirth of uh, our nature uh, 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 at the end of time. And through this rebirth, the entire creation will be reestablished in the dignity given to it by God at the moment of creation and disgraced by human sin. Now, if this is the case, then I suggest intrinsic teleology of each created entity is an expression of its groaning for the fulfillment in God. And flowing from, therefore, flowing from God, yet ontologically radically distinct from Him, created beings strive to achieve the maximal level of actuality and goodness available to them. Their intrinsic teleology is thus oriented towards the highest possible resemblance of the perfection and goodness of God. And this, I believe, enables us to analogically extend the classical theological scheme of exitus and reditus, departing from God and coming back to God, traditionally referred to humanity, to entire creation. Then we summarize, therefore, saying that the end of all things, by which Aquinas seems to understand the totality of the universe, is some extrinsic good, which is outside of the universe, and all creatures, they strive towards it. Okay, this was, uh, this was, uh, th these were two ways uh, of uh, dealing with 
teleology in um, in uh, Aquinas's fifth way. Once again, in reference to uh, natural theology, departing from nature, reaching God, and then uh, theology of nature, departing from God and looking uh, what new we learn about teleology. And as I said, we've learned that it uh, that na that natural teleology that we observe in the universe, theologically speaking, directs all creatures towards the Creator, uh, to to reach towards Him. Now let's move to the third part of my presentation. Which, are, uh, which is dedicated to few remarks about the uh, place of teleology in panentheism. We have this, I like this image very much, I found it uh, online, uh, an image of uh, panentheism, which says uh, that uh, everything is in God, panentheos, who at the same time transcends the created and contingent reality. This is um, uh, this is uh, this this is uh, a new movement in theology in a way, but also uh, but only in a way, because uh, panentheism uh, uh, is one of the uh, prominent versions of theism rooted in some ancient non-Christian and Christian traditions. Uh, it is uh, recommended uh, nowadays, today, as forging a middle path between classical theism and panentheism and pantheism. Uh, and panentheism nowadays gained much popularity, especially in the last uh, century. And it is important for us in this conference because a number of authors in science and theology dialogue, they actually place themselves as followers, uh, followers of panentheism. We may think about Ian Barber, Philip Clayton, Paul Davies, Arthur Peacock, and uh, recently deceased, just a few days ago, uh, John Polkinghorne. Now, uh, so how do they see nature? This is a first question that I believe we need to answer. So all of them, all of them focusing their research on the philosophical and theological implications of quantum mechanics, the theory of relativity, the Big Bang theory, non-equilibrium equilibrium thermodynamics, evolutionary biology and genetics. They all state what has been emphasized many times in this conference, uh, they claim that what we deal with in nature is an interplay of law and chance, or of order or determinism and chance. And yes, indeed, we find followers uh, of panentheism uh, within this uh, the, uh, science and theology dialogue uh, claiming precisely this. For example, uh, Arthur Peacock would say that uh, what we see in, in the nature is the interplay of chance and law, and it is creative. Ian Barber says randomness at one level leads to dynamic uh, patterns at another level. Polkinghorn uh, says both chance and necessity are indispensable partners in the fruitful history of the universe. Now, referring these to God, they will emphasize that Peacock says, God is the ultimate ground and source of both law, necessity, and chance. Both law and chance are part of God's design, says Barber. And Paul Kinghorn, one should look for God's presence in the historical contingency, chance, as well as in the regularity, necessity of what is happening. So I totally agree with what they say here. At the same time, I want to ask two questions. The first question is this. What is the natural principle of necessity and order, if there is one? 
Well, to this, Polkinghorne would say, these are lawful uh, regularities of physical processes. Well, yes, but laws of nature, as claims uh, William Steger, uh, they are only imperfect abstract descriptions of physical phenomena and not prescriptions dictating or enforcing behavior. So maybe necessity and order observable in empirical science require another grounding which is metaphysical. And I think that such foundation can be defined in reference to classical categories of substantial form, intrinsic teleology, goal-directedness, and normative notion of a good proper to a given entity. And these are categories to which those thinkers in a panentheistic uh, movement, they, I think, rarely refer. Now, uh, then, and second question, if God truly grounds and is the source of order and chance, well, we may say, how does God ground and is the source of order and chance? Well, to this uh, question, the answer would be, if you would like to introduce those classical uh, categories, uh, the answer would be God as a purpose and goodness is, uh, as, I'm sorry, as pure act and goodness is the ultimate source of clearly defined metaphysical categories of substantial form, intrinsic teleology, and normative notion of a good proper to a given entity. Uh, again, this is the language that is avoided by uh, panentheists. And I think I have two reasons why I think deliberately a science-oriented panentheism avoids teleology. The first reason is this. I believe that they associate teleology with a particular kind of design arguments, which assume direct special divine interventions in nature and are often identified as God of gaps type of reasoning. Look at this quote from Davies, but you, Barber, thinks similar. Uh, Davies says this, in the earlier divine teleological schemes of pre-Darwinian Christianity, God directly selected a final outcome and simply engineered the end product by supernatural manipulation. So Davies says, I want to pre, uh, uh, offer teleology without tele teleology. He says the creativity of nature mimics pre-Darwinian teleology, but does not require the violation or suspension of the physical laws. Now, you can clearly, uh, in the light of uh, what was said in this lecture, you can clearly uh, see, and it is apparent that Davis's notion of the earlier divine teleological schemes refers to the notion of teleology that has little, if anything, to do with the one offered by Aristotle and theologically uh, reflected by Aquinas. It most likely refers to William Paley's argument from design, which is refurbished uh, uh, which in its refurbished version is fostered by the contemporary proponents of intelligent design. So I think that if panentheists realize this, they may be more in favor of teleology. The second uh, argument and the second reason why I think they don't necessarily like teleology is this. Well, panentheism in a way, one way or the other, assumes that all things actually already are in God. There's a whole lot of question, uh, another very difficult question, what they mean by that and how we interpret this 
and in Pan and Theos. Uh, my book that is coming in May is entirely uh, uh, dedicated to this question. Uh, but let's leave it aside. Uh, Panentheism assumes that things in a way are already in God, and I think this might obscure the notion of intrinsic teleology in created entities as oriented towards the highest possible resemblance of the perfection of God, and similar with the grades of goodness proper uh, to creatures, which are directed toward God as goodness itself. I want to emphasize that I claim that this, uh, you know, uh, theological manifesto of panentheism that all things are already in God, I want to say once again, this might obscure the notion of intrinsic teleology. It doesn't have to obscure that notion of intrinsic teleology. I believe you can have and you can refer to teleology in uh, panentheism, but once again, I did not find authors uh, writing within this theological tradition uh, in science theology dialogue uh, referring to the teleology uh, in, in, very much. Uh, they actually do not do that in, in my understanding of their theology. So here is the conclusion. I think that teleology is theologically fruitful, both within the perspective of natural theology and theology of nature. Well, there's a work to be done still. I think a further research is needed that will first reinvigorate the classical theological reflection on teleology, uh, a research which will contextualize it in reference to contemporary science. This is part of what we try to do in this uh, conference. And also a research that will engage it into a conversation with other schools of theology participating in the ongoing dialogue between science, philosophy, and theology, including science-oriented pan-antings. There is another uh, point of reference here or theological tradition you might refer to that is process theism, uh, theism embraced by uh, Ian Barbour, but also uh, in one way or the other by other uh, thinkers listed here. I do not have time to uh, discuss it in this lecture. It has come uh, to its end. But as an outcome of this presentation, I have already a paper ready where I actually discuss both panentheism and process uh, the uh, theism in science and theology dialogue uh, with, uh, in reference to tele teleology. So I hope this paper will be published and you may uh, uh, be able to reach towards it. This is the end of my presentation. Uh, here are the sources I used uh, 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 for quotations. Thank you very much uh, for your attendance, uh, and I am now uh, ready and open uh, for uh, questions. There we are. Uh, thank you very much, Father Marish, for that very, uh, very, very insightful and, 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 and intriguing talk. And there are already a number of questions, uh, so uh, we'll jump right in here. So let's see if I could start. Um, so the first one. Um, uh, Right. So the, the first the first one here I'm looking at was asked to be Reverend Enric Gell, I believe. What would be the problem with a thesis that intrinsic theology is just a necessary feature of substances with no outside transcendent cause, as Aristotle seemed to have thought? So mm -hmm. I, yeah. just what if intrinsic theology is just a necessary feature of substances, is that a problem or how does that fit into what you were talking about? Okay, uh, it's, it's a very interesting question, and uh, I'm thinking through it right now, so I, I, I'm not 100% sure whether my answer to it is, uh, is appropriate. Uh, 
um, I, I would tend to think that, uh, okay, one way, okay, on the one hand, uh, for Aquinas, uh, nature works. And uh, if there, if it is just a natural phenomenon and we don't have, don't find an immediate direct, uh, you know, reference to God as a source of it, fine, uh, it works. But within his scheme, it will still be within God's providence, but maybe without this direct uh, reference that we may find uh, or that I was trying to uh, explain in, uh, uh, in, my, in my lecture. So I would, I, I would, I would say this. Uh, yeah, and I think that would be my answer. I mean, it's actually maybe not that complex. That is my answer. <laughs> All right. Um, so we have a question from I believe, uh, Mark Mondano. Uh, could you uh, uh, read your question? Good day. Uh, can you hear me? Could you hear me? Yes. Uh, but yeah. Did you speak up? Okay. Uh, my question, uh, brother, brother Marius, uh, my question is, uh, in your opinion, should you think, that, uh, do you think that Aquinas is way to be the best and firm argument of proving God's existence in okay. all the, you know, the, you know, the uh, arguments? Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, um, so my answer to this would be this. First of all, uh, I don't have a clear um, like view on which of the ways in which Aquinas uh, uh, argues in favor of the existence of God uh, would be the best one. And to begin with, I would be very careful to uh, to 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 calling them or to naming them proofs. Um, in reference to contemporary um, metaphysics, to contemporary philosophy, and also, so that's that's a very questionable uh, thing. So I tend to treat them as a reasonable arguments in favor of God's existence. I'm not quite sure we can find true proofs for God's existence. Uh, so, and then whether this one is the best one, mm, hard to say. I think uh, I don't I don't have a preference here. Um, so, uh, Luca Setimo, could you uh, answer, ask your question? Oh, hello. Um, hi, Marius. Um, my question, uh, it was about the, um, uh, you mentioned in the presentation that chance is ontologically real, if I understood correctly. And uh, I know that many theologians would dispute that. Uh, I would like just a clarification because chaos can be seen as an attractor, something yes. that drives biological phenomena, for example, but it can also be seen as absence of information, absence of physical law, so no foundation. So it's very risky to say that is uh, ontologically real. Just a, a clarification. Mm-hmm. Well, we actually had with Father Thomas a conversation between, uh, well, before uh, I think this uh, this uh, last lecture. And uh, we both think that for Aris, both for Aristotle and Aquinas, chance, chance is ontologically real. Now, uh, the dispute even between us is uh, whether, uh, whether this uh, explanation where there are two lines of causation and they, inter, uh, they, they cross, uh, whether this is just epistemological chance or already ontological chance, but even if it is not, and even, it is, even if it is only epistemological chance, Father Thomas claims that 
uh, that uh, there is still ontological chance because of the principles of act and potency and because of the uh, poten pure potentiality of primary matter. Uh, and because of that, and, and uh, substantial form, they are never, they, they never, uh, like, am I right? Uh, like perfectly inform matter to, like in a way that, uh, that would bring it to the completion where like nothing can be like yeah. achieved anymore. There's, there's a way in which, for instance, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I need to look back to see what exactly is aerosol versus like harness that I'd be quoting on here. But the way that, um, the way that, that, for instance, the heavenly spheres are related to their matter is not the same as the way that contingent uh, sublunary being, beings are, are related to their matter. Yeah, and there's, there's a certain weakness in the very forms of contingent things such that they do inform matter, but they never inform matter in a way that is necessary and perfect. Uh, and so there's an inherent indeterminacy to a certain aspect of even in uh, the work, uh, even even in Aristotle. And there's some, uh, I, I, if you, the, the work I always go back to when, I'm, when I start thinking about this is Charles DeConnick's work on uh, chance and indeterminacy, where he makes a very strong argument that if you, that, that, that Aquinas believes the world is uh, uh, inherently indeterministic, um, and that later attempts to incorporate a sort of purely deterministic notion of the physical world, um, uh, depart from uh, the kind of Aristotle and Aquinas or more along the lines of Scotus or something like that. Yeah. So we'll leave it at that. Yeah, but, and, and, but this is always chance within order, always. There, order, both Aristotle and Aquinas, they would say order and, and natures are first. And because they are out there, you can have chance. Otherwise you could not have chance. So radical tichism or tychism is not a way to go for them.